Hi guys, uh, my name is Tim. I'm a second year doing maths and data science. I'm going to read from the Bible right now. Um, and so you can follow along with me uh, in your own Bibles or you can find it on the inside page of the handouts. Uh, the reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 31. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made, the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you call, were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. November 8, 2016, began like any other big night in Obama world, with chicken fingers and waffle fries. The tradition went back to the earliest days of Senator Barack Obama's campaign for president and was passed down from Chicago to Washington, D.C. and from Houlihan's to the White House Navy mess. Throughout two terms, before Oval Office addresses to the nation, on debate nights and before the President's State of the Union speeches, we called down to place an order or four. I got my first taste of the custom six years ago when I arrived at the White House fresh out of college. I started as the media monitor, 
pulling and circulating news clips until Dan Pfeiffer, then the President's communications director, spotted me late one evening and told me I looked like death. In 2011, I moved from the Eisenhower building and into the West Wing as a press wrangler, hurting journalists across the country and around the world with the President. I listened to hundreds of President Obama's speeches, crouched with the photographers in the buffer between the stage and the audience, before I ever wrote in his voice. I loved when he'd slap the side of a lectern at the end of his remarks. That's how you knew he was on. That's the fire you wanted on a chicken finger night. <clears throat> well, that's Pat Kinane, uh, President Obama's senior speechwriter and the deputy director of messaging, uh, writing in the New Yorker magazine about the night that Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump. Uh, and his description of life in the White House, while it might seem very far removed from us here in the lecture theatre at UWA, I think there's actually a number of similarities. And perhaps even more surprisingly, it's quite similar to life in first century Corinth. See, first century Corinth, uh, although it was ruled by Caesar, was on a practical level not really a monarchy where, you know, what matters is the family that you're from. It wasn't communist or fascist where what matters is the political ideology that you hold to. Although it was the Roman Empire, it wasn't even really a dictatorship where military power is the path to success. Because although Roman Corinth was part of the Roman Empire, it was actually, like Washington and Perth and UWA, really a meritocracy where anyone could get ahead if they had the ability. And the ability that was looked for was education. That was the skill people wanted. If you could attach yourself to a good teacher, then you could learn all the tricks of the trade. You could become a great speaker, a great orator, and you could impress people and then people would notice you. It's like here, you come to uni, you do your degree, uh, maybe you go and earn a PhD, a doctorate of philosophy, you aim to be smarter than everyone else so that you'll stand out from the pack, so that you'll be noticed, so that you can get ahead. And then the professors will invite you to come and do honours with them. Twiggy Forrest will call you up and invite you to come and work for him. the White House communications director will ask you to work with the president. Because that's the way the world works. It's the way that uni works. Stand out, get noticed, and get ahead. And that way of thinking, that normal Corinthian, Washingtonian, UWAian way of thinking, that approach to life, has come into the Corinthian church. And that's one of the main reasons Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. Because the church there has divided up into factions. Now, we saw that last week, that they're, they're claiming to belong to different leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And we asked last week, why would they do that? Because, after all, the leaders there all actually agree with each other. 
Paul and Peter, they were appointed by Christ. We read in the book of Acts that uh, Paul, at least, knew Apollos, and probably Peter did as well, and judging by Acts, they get on really well. They think very highly of each other. And as you read the things that they write and the records of their speeches, you discover that they're all singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak. They're all proclaiming the same message, that God sent his son, Jesus, the Messiah, to be crucified in our place, to pay the penalty for our rebellion against God, and that he rose again as God's king over all creation. They're all on the same page. The leaders are united, but the church is divided. We saw last week that that seems to be primarily a style thing. You know, I really like the way that Paul preaches. Ah, no, no, Paul is nothing compared to Apollos. Oh, no, no, no. Well, I actually heard the gospel first through Peter. And they're quarrelling over style. But the fact that they're quarrelling over style shows you something significant. It shows you that that is where they think the power lies. That what will save and transform people, what will make you significant, is the style, the person that you're attached to. And after all, that's not surprising because that's what gets you ahead in normal life, isn't it? Uh, How well do you present? Do you come across well at the job interview? Are you the protege of an impressive lecturer, a great researcher? That'll get you ahead in life. That's what people care about. But it's worth asking, what does God care about? That's a critical question because in the end, God is actually the only one who counts, isn't he? Your friends, your family, your lecturers, your bosses... They don't actually have any say about your eternal destiny. They don't get to judge or save, but God does. So what does God care about? And it turns out that what he cares about is not the stuff that we care about. You can see that there in verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I wonder if you've... Have you ever heard a really good speaker? Like a sort of blow-your-socks-off excellent speaker? I reckon I've heard two in my life, and neither of them were Christians. Uh, The first one um, was uh, a guy called Louis Farrakhan who is the leader of the American black power movement, the Nation of Islam. And I got to hear an interview with him on the 7.30 report, and I don't know what that guy was doing, but he was amazing. He is an absolute genius speaker. Just the, the rhythm, the cadence, the tone of his voice is just mesmerising. And I sat there just gripped, and I found myself nodding my head and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you snap out of the trance and you go, what this guy is saying is literally insane. I don't know if you know anything about the nation of Islam, but it is crazy. 
It's a sort of black supremacist movement that thinks that Jews infected the black people with AIDS. And it's a, a movement that is kind of a weird mix of Islam and Scientology, if you can believe it. It's a very strange movement. And the things that he was saying was insane. But you listen to him and you think, this guy's amazing. It's incredible. The other guy I heard was a philosopher called John Ralston Saul. And he did the 1995 Massey Lectures for the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Um, 1995, I'm giving away my age, aren't I? Uh, he did a series of lectures called The Unconscious Civilization. And he argued that Western society is only superficially based on the individual and democracy. That's what we talk about, but in reality, at its heart, we live in a society that is increasingly conformist and corporatist, and where legitimacy lies with special interest groups who really set the agenda, and the rest of us have just retreated into a kind of uh, consumerist daydream. Ralston Saul is a brilliant speaker. He's stimulating and he's insightful. And I reckon over the last 20 years, he's been shown to be profoundly right. But he's changed nothing. You can mesmerise people with wisdom and eloquence. You can recruit people as personal followers. And yet, Paul refuses to do it. He says he refuses to do it because it would empty the cross of Christ of its power. If you stop and think about that a moment, can you imagine how insane that sounds in that world? The cross of Christ has power? Because the whole point of a cross is to leave the person crucified powerless. You're literally helpless. You're nailed there to a piece of wood. You can't do anything. It's designed to humiliate you. No Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified. You got the dignified death of having your head cut off. It was only for traitors and runaway slaves who would be crucified. It's utterly humiliating. It's utterly powerless. Intellect, eloquence, philosophy, well, they're attractive. They attract us UWA kind of people. They're the currency of our world. They're the kind of things that get you jobs in the White House press room. And compared to them, the cross of Christ looks foolish, daft. Because the crucifixion of Jesus isn't a well-reasoned logical argument. It's not a logical deduction from first principles. It's not obviously beautiful or attractive. It's a tortured man who's been crucified by a dictatorship at the urging of the mob, nailed to a piece of wood, gasping his last breaths, feces running down his legs. It's utterly humiliating. And it sounds literally insane that God would send his son to do that that God could use anything like that to save anyone. It sounds as insane as anything that Louis Farrakhan might come out with. 
So how can Paul say in verse 18 that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God? We humans often realise that we're broken. We, we see that. There's something wrong with us. And people come up with various solutions because although we recognise that we're broken, we like to think that we can fix ourselves. You know, with a bit of thought, a bit of ingenuity, some careful reflection and maybe a really beautifully crafted speech or two, then yes, we can. We can change. We can make ourselves great again to paraphrase Donald Trump, or to quote Barack Obama, yes, we can. But God says here, no, you can't. If you think that intelligence, philosophy and eloquence can save you from God's anger at your sin, then you have not understood just how broken you are. You haven't got your head around how bad you truly are how hostile you instinctively are towards God, how naturally self-centred you have become, how damaged you are at a truly fundamental level by your rebellion against God. We say, yes, we can. God says, no, you can't. Verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Tell me, says Paul in verse 20, Where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? In other words, where's the person who's actually solved the problem? Where's the person who has reconciled us to God? Well, you won't find him in the philosophy department. You find him naked, bleeding, humiliated, nailed to a cross. Because the Son of God didn't come to philosophise. He didn't come to argue about the law. He came to die for us. Which sounds insane, doesn't it? What kind of a mission is that? How does that rescue anyone? You won't find it in your philosophy units. But here is the really crazy thing. That this cross, this crucifixion of the Son of God actually worked. It's the one thing that actually brings us to God. I'm not trying to keep the Old Testament law. It's not philosophical arguments or great speeches. No, says God, the death of Jesus on the cross, taking our punishment in our place so that we might go free, that is the only thing that works. If anything else could have worked, God would have done that rather than sending his son to die. But nothing else did work. And the cross does. And it undermines all our pretensions. The philosophers, the rabbis, the great orators of this age, for all their wisdom, for all their genius, they never imagined that God would make himself known to us, that he would reconcile himself to us through the appalling, humiliating, agonising death of his son on the cross. Tell me where that comes up in Socrates or Plato or Aristotle. Where does that come up in any of the teachings of the rabbis? Where have you heard that in the philosophy department? 
verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We want to be in control. We want to save ourselves. We want to be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, well done, old chap, you did it. Because in the end, we want to say that we owe God nothing. We did it all ourselves. We're in charge. We're the masters of the universe. And that is the problem. As someone has said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Our hearts are rebellious against God. Our hearts are self-centred. Our hearts want to boast about ourselves. And so God, in his wisdom, chose something that no one could boast about, that no one had ever dreamed of. He chose to save us through the cross. And that is where the power is. But I think most of us don't believe it. Instead we think, if only I were smarter, if only I'd studied philosophy or ancient history or science or if only I were a better speaker and I didn't get tongue-tied when I try to tell people about Jesus. If only I had a more impressive personality, if I was, I was more charismatic, or if I could work miracles or smash people with arguments, then people would come to Christ. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. <laughs> I've wished for all those things. But do you see what God's saying? He's saying, if you think that, you're wrong. You're badly mistaken. Those things, the wisdom, the eloquence of this world, even miraculous signs, they are not where the power of God lies because the power of God lies in the message of the cross. We get confused about this as Christians. Um, You've sort of got the right wing of the church that kind of thinks, man, if only we could get political power, if we could get more Christian politicians into parliament, then we could pass Christian laws and that would... That would save everything. And then you've got the left wing who goes, oh, that's gross. No. What we need is cultural power. We need, we need great music like Sufjan Stevens. Or we need great literature like Marilyn Robinson. Or if only we could make more movies, more art house movies like Terence Malick. Then, then people would see how good Christianity is. That's where the real power is. But the right and the left, they're both wrong. It's not that philosophy or history or science or literature or music or the movies are bad things. They're terrific things. They're good gifts of God. And if you're involved in that or hoping to be involved in that, that's terrific. Go for it. But the power to save people is not in politics or philosophy. It's not in the beauty of your writing or the creativeness of your music. It's in the message of the cross. And if you're a Christian, 
that ought to be a huge relief to you. And if you're not a Christian, it ought to be a huge relief to you as well. Because it means that you don't need to be the next Sufjan Stevens. You don't need to be the next Marilyn Robinson. You don't need to be the next great political leader. You don't need to be the smartest or the most eloquent guy in the room. Those things will not persuade God to like you. They will not make you more effective in bringing people to him. In fact, uh, the strange thing is they often get in the way. Because if you're Sufjan Stevens, sorry Sufjan, pick on you, uh, people look at him and go, that guy is amazing. What an incredible artist. But they don't look at Jesus. You don't need to be the smartest or the most eloquent girl in the room. You don't need people to end up praising you. Because it's simply the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified that brings people into relationship with God. And if you stop and think about it for a moment, that's obviously true. Because if you're a believer, how did you come to know God? Was it through a brilliant philosophical argument? Was it through an incredibly beautiful and moving speech? Was it through a miraculous sign? My guess is probably not. It's probably through someone quite normal and ordinary. It was boring old mum or daggy old dad or some pastor that no one's ever heard of. Or a Sunday school teacher who just turned up faithfully every week. Or your friend at school or at uni. It was a nobody. Someone who is never going to change the world. Except they did, didn't they? When they shared the message of the cross with you. Not by their brilliance, not by their skill, but by telling you about Jesus Christ and him crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It was actually the message of the cross that reconciled you to God, wasn't it? That's where the power lies. That's where the real wisdom is. So if it worked for you, if you're a Christian, why do you think it won't work for other people? Why do you think you need to be smarter or more eloquent? If that message through normal, everyday people saved you, do you think God is so hamstrung by your weaknesses that he can't use you? That if only you were better, then maybe he'd be able to use you? How did God actually save the world? Did he do it through... A mighty army, or a conquering king, or a brilliant philosopher? No, he did it through a naked, humiliated man nailed to a cross in absolute shame and weakness. Do you think he could do that, but now he's stymied by you? Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. 
God shows the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Brothers and sisters, I hate to break it to you, but if God wanted someone impressive, if he needed someone impressive, he would not have chosen you. Or me, for that matter. If God needed someone who could steamroll philosophy lecturers, he would not have chosen you. If he needed beautiful people, he would not have chosen you. If he needed gripping, articulate wordsmiths, He would not have chosen you. But the good thing is, he doesn't need any of it. In fact, he chose you guys because you are unimpressive. And so am I. He chose us so that the focus would not be on us, but on his son. So that the one who boasts should not boast in themselves, but boast in the Lord. Listen. God has put you and me here at UWA. And when we look around at the people at this university, we are small fish in a very big pond. An 18-year-old undergrad is very rarely wise by human standards. They are almost never influential, and even fewer of them are of noble birth. And as for me... I don't think the university even knows that I exist. And that's fine. Because God uses us. He uses the weak and the foolish to shame the wise and the strong. To bring them the offer of salvation. Just as he used a humiliated, broken man, nailed to a cross to achieve that salvation in the first place. But do you believe it? It's actually what God says. He says it right here in this passage that we've been looking at today. Do you believe that the message of the cross is able to save people? You should. Saved you, if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you can have confidence that it will save you too. You don't need to be the White House Director of Communications. You don't need to be the head of the philosophy department. You don't need to be eloquent and stylish. You just need to trust God. You need to believe what he says, that the message of the cross through unimpressive people saves those who believe. In fact, it's the only thing that saves anyone. All our effort, all our great speeches, all our brilliant philosophy has never saved anyone because it doesn't pay for our sin. It doesn't undermine our arrogance. It doesn't cause the one who boasts to boast in the Lord. But the cross does. The cross does. And the cross, although it looks foolish, is the wisdom and the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for saving those of us who have believed. Not because of who we are, but 
simply through the message of your cross. And we pray for those of us who don't know you, Father. We pray that uh, you would bring them to a realisation of the wisdom and the power of the cross. Please give us confidence to hold it out to others, that many more might be reconciled to God, to know the Creator who loves us and sent his Son to die for us. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.